is from Luke chapter 4, from 1 to 14. Luke chapter 4, from 1 to 14. It's on page 1030, Church Bible, and you can follow on the wall. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by spirit into wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all the authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. I can resist everything except temptation. So said Oscar Wilde. It was a tongue-in-cheek statement, no doubt, but what he seems to be saying in his irreverent tongue-in-cheek way is this. Temptation is hard to resist. It can be hard to resist temptation. It wouldn't be a temptation otherwise, would it? And let's face it, one doesn't always try very hard. But resist it we must, because not to resist temptation is to sin. Notice I said not to resist temptation is sin. Temptation in itself is not sin. Why am I so sure of that? Because of what we read just now in Luke chapter 4. This passage tells me that Jesus himself was tempted. And what we know about Jesus is this, is that he was sinless. He was not simply sinless in himself, but as the opening verse of this chapter tells us, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit. And yet in spite of all this, even he was tempted. In fact, that's exactly what we read elsewhere in the Bible, isn't it? Remember Hebrews 4, verse 15? We do not have, a, this with its double negative, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tested in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. He was tempted, yet he didn't sin, ever. So temptation itself cannot be sin. 
But this passage of Scripture here in Luke 4 tells us that Jesus resisted temptation. And if we're truly to be his followers, we need to be in the business of resisting temptation as well. Temptation is not sin, but it is a call to battle. It's a call to take up arms of resistance. But I can't pretend in the time I've got available tonight that I'll be able to give you everything, anything like a complete guide to resisting temptation or even to do justice to all that you can learn from this incident recorded in Luke chapter 4. My modest ambition this evening is to highlight just two things that strike me about temptation. As I look over this instant, and I'm, you would have expected me to finish at verse 13, but I'll tell you later why I've gone into verse 14. Two things, basically. First of all, we, like the Lord Jesus, may face a variety of temptations. And the second thing is we, through the Lord Jesus, may gain a victory over temptation. We, like the Lord Jesus, may face a variety of temptations. We, through the Lord Jesus, may gain a victory over temptations. So then, first of all, notice that we, like the Lord Jesus, may face a variety of temptations. Now, in one sense, of course, this incident is unique, as unique as Calvary and Easter. The three temptations on record for us here are unique sorts of temptations. That's because they are offered to someone who is, after all, a unique person and who achieves a unique success over those unique temptations. But I think it's fair to say that in principle, these three temptations are three kinds of temptations we can all face in one form or another. Like Jesus, we may have to face, as he did, an appeal to our appetite. Let me read verses 3 and 4. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The Lord Jesus is at the end of his 40-day fast. Maybe he's been wrapped up, so wrapped up in communion, with his father during those 40 days, as well as any previous battles he's had with Satan, that he's felt neither the need nor the desire for food. But then the experience ends, and the need so long suspended makes itself felt in verse 2. At the end of them, he was hungry. And it's at this point when, humanly speaking, the Lord Jesus is at his most vulnerable that the devil comes to him with precisely the temptation that he knows will be most effective, a direct appeal to an appetite. Temptation can come just at the time we are most vulnerable to it and along the lines of that which we are most naturally inclined towards. And the thing is, the appetite in question might, as in Jesus' case, be perfectly natural and legitimate in itself. There's nothing sinful in itself about being hungry. God made us that way. So then if being hungry as such is not a sin, why does Jesus say no to Satan's seemingly reasonable solution? I believe he does so because for him, 
to give in to Satan's suggestion at this particular point would to, to satisfy a perfectly lawful appetite would be by unlawful means. In, in Jesus' own case, I think that meant the temptation to go it alone as Messiah without remaining dependent upon his Father's direction and the Holy Spirit's guidance. Because Jesus is called now to be the servant of the Lord, as predicted by the prophet Isaiah. I'll say more about that later on. Jesus could easily make have made a good could easily make be making a good case at this point for going along with the devil. What Jesus is being tempted to do ties in exactly with what people are looking for in their Messiah. The religious leaders, the rabbis, taught that the Messiah would repeat the miracle of manna in the desert as a sign of his coming. In fact, that's why people perhaps get so excited when Jesus feeds the 5,000 plus in the desert. This to them is a sign of God's kingdom breaking in. That's why they want to make Jesus a king. And as I've already indicated, Jesus can theoretically, as the son of God, do just what Satan is suggesting. He's got the power to do so. One day he will turn water into wine and later still feed a multitude with five small loaves and two small fish. But he knows that now, as the servant of the Lord, now is not the time to use that power even to satisfy a legitimate appetite. Now, in your case, of course, you won't have possessed supernatural powers to satisfy your appetites by unlawful means then in your case you may not need supernatural powers to satisfy your craving or mine and won't need supernatural power to say yes when your conscience tells you to say no by helping yourself when no one's looking or going somewhere physically or virtually that you shouldn't. Now Jesus might have rationalised his giving way to Satan's suggestion as might you and I. It's only natural to want this. I need to unwind. It's what anybody else would do in my shoes. Who know, Who's to know anyway? Anyway, it's not such a big deal, is it? It's not as if I'm a murderer or a rapist or a bank robber. I owe it to myself. It's a rather sobering thought, isn't it, that through a similar appeal to appetite, that the devil brought, down the, brought the whole human race crashing down. When Eve saw that the fruit in the Garden of Eden was good for food. She gave some to her husband, and the rest, they say, is history. And it was good. The the beauty, the goodness, the deliciousness was God-made. The thing was, at that point, it was off limits. But, whereas the first Adam failed, in paradise, even though he was in paradise, yes, the last Adam, Jesus, prevailed, even though he was in a desert. And just as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, including you and me, so by one man's obedience, the obedience of one man, many will be made righteous, including you, if you're trusting in Christ. We, like Jesus, then, may face a variety of temptations. And not just an appeal to our appetite. We, too, like the Lord Jesus, may also have to face an appeal to our ambition. Or, if you like, the offer of a shortcut to success. Let me read you verses 5 to 8. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, 
it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. There's nothing wrong with the goal that the devil sets before the Lord, the kingdoms, all the kingdoms of the world. After all, God the Father has promised his son exactly this, hasn't he? Psalm 2 verse 8. Ask of me, says God the Father, and I will make the nations your inheritance. The goal itself, therefore, is not wrong. What's wrong are the means to that goal? God the Father says, ask of me, but now Satan says, ask of me. And what Satan has here on offer is what he reckons is a shortcut to success. Why wait for God the Father to give you all the kingdoms of the world sometime in the future when I can give them to you right now? I can take the waiting out of what you're wanting to borrow the notorious advertising slogan of one of the first credit cards. Do what I say and you will be able to enjoy the gains without having to endure the pains that your father caused you to go through. You can feel the force of this sort of temptation, can't you? You can take the shortcut to success. You can wear a crown without having to bear a cross. But of course, this just isn't on, is it? There can be no crown without a cross because only by going the way of the cross as the suffering servant can sins be forgiven and there be a kingdom of forgiven sinners, as we were singing about. It's only by the cross that the Lord Jesus was able to open the kingdom of heaven to all believers. What seems to be a plausible offer is in fact a phony offer, offered by the father of lies. An empty offer that would obliterate the very object of the Lord's mission. And of course, this isn't to be the last time that Jesus will be tempted to gain a cross, without a crown without a cross. We've already seen when he feeds the 5,000, the crowds in the desert, they'll offer him a crown. Of course, when the time was right for him to be publicly acknowledged as king, he willingly promotes such an acknowledgement on that first Palm Sunday. When he's nearing the end of his journey to the cross, he always he's going to have a coronation, but his coronation is going to be a crown of thorns and he'd be enthroned on a cross. And furthermore, when he tells his disciples about the cross, Peter will say, don't do that. Don't do it, but the Lord will realize there's somebody else standing behind Peter, and he will send him the other party packing with the words, get behind me, Satan. And so today, right here and now, Satan's still in the business of appealing to our ambition with offers of shortcuts to success. He still offers gains without pains, good ends achieved by bad means, quick fixes that take the waiting out of wanting. Of course you want to get good results in your exams. That's a good ambition. What's the harm of a little bit of cheating? Go on, you know, go on the, the, the appropriate app and so on. Of course you want to get on in your career. Yes, you'll need to do the dirty on one or two of your colleagues. And yes, that CV's just a little inflated. Yes, that's the contract. It's a bit iffy, but well, that's business, as they say, isn't it? And the temptation can be very plausible. Why cheat? Why not cheat on my tax return? We're short of money, and the government pays 
we pay the government enough taxes already and they only blow it on stupid things like HS2. I don't say, no, that's not a political statement. But, just, but the firm doesn't pay, or, or the firm, that, why not inflate my expenses? The firm doesn't pay me enough. So it's only getting what I'm entitled to, isn't it? Injustice. One of the most amusing and dubious shortcuts in more senses than one I heard about was one taken by one of my work colleagues. Um, my job was to make outside calls. His job was to make outside calls on people who hadn't paid up. But he would include in his calls a call on his barber to get his hair cut in the firm's time. An excuse, well, it grows in their time, doesn't it? <laughs> Finally, besides an appeal to appetite and to ambition, a shortcut to success, we get a third appeal. And I'm going to read verses 9 to 12 to the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, you, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord, your God, to the test. I'm going to call this an appeal to our desire for affirmation or if you like a flight to fame. It's an appeal to our desire to be recognised to be valued to be appreciated, to be noticed even applauded. It's not necessarily a bad desire in itself Jesus wanted people to recognise him as Messiah but of course in the right way and so Satan offers him a, a flight to fame, a literal flight in his case and that tied in with the popular image of the Messiah. People are looking for a mighty conqueror or even a wonder worker. Show us a sign and we'll believe you, said some to him. Come down from the cross and we'll believe you. But that wasn't the point. He didn't come simply to be a performer of spectacles, but a saviour from sin. We all want to be noticed in some way, don't we? Some are more... Um, narcissistic than others. Facebook's a good place for the narcissist. Isn't that what's behind people's desire for celebrity status? To be famous if only for 15 minutes or even to be liked on Facebook? I've got 28 likes. I've got 157. However, the desire for affirmation may tempt one to boast one's lack of self-esteem by some dubious ego trip. Maybe even in our Christian service we may be tempted to aim to shine rather than to serve, as did some of the Corinthian Christians with their spiritual gifts. Oh, to sense people say, isn't she spiritual? What a keen Christian. Or we may be tempted to gain popularity at the expense of principle. So I'll compromise my Christian witness to keep and even gain friends, to keep in with the crowd, maybe even the ecclesiastical crowd, sadly, in some cases. But it wasn't just these three temptations that Jesus had to face, attempting appeal to appetite, attempting shortcut to success, and attempting flight to fame. Even during the time he was in the desert, you look at verse 2, you read, when for 40 days he was tempted by the devil, he ate nothing. And at the end of that time, he was hungry. What these three temptations seem to belong to is the end point in this 40-day time in the desert. These three temptations that we've read about in verses 3 to 12, the appeals to appetite, ambition, and affirmation, they're recorded, as it were, at the end. 
do we conclude from that there are there were other unrecorded temptations after all it also says that it didn't end then did it because in verse 13 we read when the devil had finished all this tempting he left him altogether no until an opportune time and that suggests to me that satan carries on tempting jesus after this incident we've already seen that he continues to do so throughout jesus ministry you know remember jesus rebuked peter get behind me satan he said you don't have in mind the things of god but the things of men in fact you might say that uh, these temptations reach their climax in the garden of gethsemane again to quote hebrews in every way he was tested so then the lord jesus faced temptations of many kinds and we can expect no less to be our experience the fact is we're in a battle and that means we ought always to be on a war footing you may have heard world war ii stories of zealous local air raid and wardens who when they discovered a house that wasn't properly blacked out would say yell put that light out don't you know there's a war on I think the one locally used to say to my grandma, Mrs. Hollands, you've got a light on. But, uh, and the thing is, temptation may strike at any time, which means we need to be on the alert. Remember the words of Jesus? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. But the disciples sadly carried on sleeping. And look what happened. However, by the time he wrote what we call his first letter, Peter, one of them, had learned his lesson. In 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, he wrote, he writes, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Your enemy is on the prowl. He's taking the initiative. He's going to select his best moment to attack. And his best moment to attack may be just the moment when you or I are least prepared to defend ourselves. Speaking in the House of Commons in 1913 on the subject of naval defence, during World War I, Winston Churchill, who was then First Lord of the Admiralty, said, We must always be ready to meet at our average moment anything that any possible enemy might hurl against us at his selected moment. When it comes to resisting temptation, I couldn't think of any better advice. I repeat Churchill's words. I won't try to imitate him. We must always be ready to meet at our average moment anything that any possible enemy might hurl against us at his selected moment. But if we, like the Lord Jesus, may face a variety of temptations, thank God we can go on to say, secondly, that Through the Lord Jesus, we may gain a victory over temptations. The Lord Jesus didn't give way to temptation, not once. He did not sin, not once. He resisted, as the Bible puts it, he resisted even to blood, striving against sin. And thanks to his victory, his mighty, it is finished victory, He's not only taken upon himself the punishment of our sins, but by his perfect obedience to God's law, having overcome all temptation, 
He provided us with his righteousness to cover all our guilt, all our failure, to justify us, to just as if us. Not only is it not only is just as if we'd never sinned, but just as if we'd lived as perfect a life, a life as the Lord Jesus himself lived. Which means that despite our continuing failure, God sees us as sinless in him. That said, however, at the same time, he does more than save us from sin's guilt to justify us. He also, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, begins to save us from sin's grip to sanctify us, to begin to set, to free you, not just from sin's punishment, but also from sin's power. Jesus takes us just as we are in our sins, but he doesn't want to leave us just as we are. He wasn't called Jesus because he would save us in our sins, but because he would save us from our sins, which means that not only like the Lord Jesus, you may face a variety of temptations, but through Jesus, by his Spirit, you may gain a victory over temptations. Yes, through Jesus and through the resources he gives you and me, you can defeat temptation. Now, I'm not preaching sinless perfection. The Bible doesn't teach sinless perfection. In fact, the Bible says, if we, that is we Christians, including the Apostle John who's writing these words, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Martin Luther spoke of being both, both justified and a sinner still. But neither does the Bible teach complacent defeatism. But neither, neither not, defeat, not, not complacent defeatism. It, it holds out the possibility of real, substantial defeat of sin. Sin shall not have a dominion over you. You're not under the law, but under grace. So when temptation seems to be speaking in the language of some people I quoted this morning, the Borg from Star Trek, resistance is futile. When temptation comes, resistance is futile. Remember, that language is from the father of lies. But can we really learn anything from about resisting temptation from the Lord Jesus as we see him going into battle with the tempter and coming out victorious? Well, if I were to call Luke 4, 1 to 4 a case studying resisting temptation, you might possibly want to say to me, hang on, now, hang on. What was the point of choosing Jesus as your case study in resisting temptation? You can't possibly expect us to be like Jesus, as successful as him, can you? He was different from us, wasn't he? He was sinless and we we're sinful. You might as well show me a film of Lionel Messi, or for those of us of an older generation, David Beckham, or even Stanley Matthews, who are as old as Vic and me, playing, and, and one or two others, uh, <laughs> playing football. That's the way to play football. Now, follow his example. Go on, bend it like Beckham or whoever, mess it, manage it like Messi or whatever, and you'll end up, you know, who knows, you could end up playing, a, playing in a soccer team where you could earn more, a couple of thousand pounds in the time it takes me to preach this sermon. Now, that's ridiculous, isn't it? Now, as I said at the beginning, there is a sense in which this event is as unique as Calvary and Easter. Yet there are two things I want to say by way of reply to that objection I've just raised. First of all, I want to say that while it's true that Jesus was sinless and we are sinful, it's interesting, isn't it, that he seems to have let his disciples in on his experience. Because he was on his own, wasn't he, with the devil and the spirit. So 
at some point he must have told them what happened about his experience of resisting temptation. But why? Could part of the reason, at least for doing so, be to draw out for them lessons about how to resist temptation as his disciples? And the second thing I would say is that when you look at just how Jesus resisted temptation, you can't but be struck that he did so, it would seem, with the same two divine resources which are available to anyone who is a genuine follower of Christ. In other words, he didn't just simply zap the devil by using his divine power as son of God. That would be to go against his calling as the servant of the Lord. So what are these resources? Well, to spot the first resource, please look back with me to how the reading begins in verse 1 of chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And you'll notice I deliberately didn't finish reading at the end of the section, verse 13. I went on to the verse 14. For this reason, we read there, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Now I could have read on to verse uh, 18, where Jesus reads from the prophet and applies to himself those words, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. The point I want to make is, of course, that Jesus, even though he is the Son of God, and as man is a sinless man, he lives his life, he exercises his ministry, and it would seem, as is implied by this passage, resists temptation as empowered by God's Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit being at work in your life, resisting temptation is a non-starter. And the Holy Spirit only works in the life of those he has made into new people by the new birth that those who put their trust in the Lord Jesus experience. So there's no point in going any further in the battle of resisting temptation until you've seen yourself as a hopeless, failed, guilty, rebellious and undeserving sinner and have asked the Lord Jesus to forgive you. And the thing is, as we've already seen, he he does more with your sin, he can do more with your sin than forgive it. He can begin to free you from it, as well as forgive it, if you yield yourself to him. And as you allow yourself to be um, open to his spirit at work in you. Enlightened by God's holy word, too, as we shall see. Because um, the Holy Spirit works through a second resource. Now to spot the second resource, I've already mentioned it, notice how each time, the way in which Jesus each time responds to Satan's tempting offers. Verse 4, it is written. Verse 8, it is written. Verse 12, it is written. It is said. Even though he is the Son of God, and as man is a sinless man, he lives his life And he exercises his ministry, as it seems quite clearly from this passage, and indeed resists temptation, as we learn here, enlightened by God's holy word, as well as enabled by God's holy spirit. Christ is here, I believe, to borrow some words of the Apostle Peter. Here, he's left us an example that we should follow in his steps. If he, the sinless Son of God, when resisting temptation, was empowered by God's holy spirit, and enlightened by God's holy word, how much more do we need to be? We who are justified, but are sinners still. We know what it is to say, we're poor, a wretched man that I am, or woman. At our best, we're unprofitable servants 
still indwelt with sinful tendencies. God gives us his Holy Spirit to enable us to resist temptation. And the Spirit works through the Word, which the Spirit, of course, has himself inspired. In fact, the Bible calls God's Word the sword of the Spirit. Here we see Jesus taking the sword of the Spirit and in the power of the Spirit, wielding it very skillfully to parry the subtle attacks from the devil. Enlightened by God's word, not to be ignorant of his evil devices. And surely in doing that, he's left us an example, hasn't he? Indeed, he will highlight the importance of God's word in the fight against sin, his prayer to his father in John 17, 17, where Jesus prays, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And did you notice all the quotes he takes are from one small section of just one book, the book of Deuteronomy. Now, I'm sure that wasn't because it was the only book he memorized, that little section. In choosing each of his replies from one small section of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6 to 8, he shows that he's found a part of the Bible that exactly addresses his circumstances, God recording the Israel's progress and failure very often in the desert. It's obviously the fruit of his having hidden God's word in his heart, just as the psalmist exhorts us in Psalm 119, verse 11, to hide God's word in our heart. And like the author of Psalm 1, to have meditated day and night in order to counter the counsel of the ungodly, in this case the diabolical originator of all ungodliness himself. I think I've got time. Um, how can we put that into some practical things? Well, I had a particular download from John Piper called Solid Joys. I get it every day. I'd always get around to reading it. And one of his, one of his goes like this. It's a short sort of podcast. Blessed are the pure in heart. This is what he says. When Paul says to put the, to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit in Romans 8.13, I take him to mean that we should use the one weapon in the Spirit's armor that is used to kill, namely the sword, which is the word of God, Ephesians 6.17. So when the body is about to be led into a sinful action by some fear or craving, we take the sword of the Spirit and kill that fear and that craving. In my experience, that means mainly severing the root of sins promised by the power of a superior promise. For example, when I begin to crave some illicit sexual pleasure, the sword swing that has often severed the root of this promised pleasure is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, Matthew 5.8. I recall the pleasures I've tasted of seeing God more clearly from undefiled conscience. And I recall the brevity and superficiality and oppressive aftertaste of sin's pleasures. And with that, God has killed the conquering power of sin. Having promises at hand that suit the temptation of the hour is one of the key, one key to a successful warfare against sin. But there are times when we don't have a perfectly suitable word from God in our in our minds. And there is no time to look through the Bible for a tailor-made promise. So all, we all need to have a small arsenal of general promises ready to use whenever fear or craving threaten to lead us astray. Here are four of my most oft-used promises in lighting, fighting against sin. Isaiah 41 verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I'll strengthen you, I'll help you, I will, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or Philippians 4.19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. 
And the promise implicit in Philippians 3, verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And of course, Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. By constantly adding to your arsenal of promises, but never lose sight, be constantly adding to your arsenal of promises, but never lose sight of the chosen few that God has blessed in your life. Do both. Be ever ready with the old, and every morning look for a new one to take with you through the day. End of quote. Of course, this also presupposes, doesn't it, a life of constant, prayerful fellowship with God the Father. And as I read this instant in its wider context, it seems to me that Satan's goal, when you boil it right down, is to spoil this relationship with God. In Jesus' case, this means tempting him to deny the very thing he's only recently committed himself to in a public way. I have to notice, brilliant mathematical genius that I am, that chapter 4 comes after chapter 3. What a brilliant mathematician. Back in chapter 3, we read that, about Jesus' baptism. And at Jesus' baptism, God the Father says to him that, um, You are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now at his baptism, Jesus publicly identifies himself with sinful humanity in total obedience to his Father. He commits himself to be God's obedient servant, the servant of the Lord. Notice that God speaks from heaven and says something very interesting. You are my son, the one I love. Now scholars reckon that's an echo of Psalm 2, you are my son, when God tells Messiah he's his son and promises all the nations for his inheritance as the Satan later on. But then, scholars say that he goes on to quote, you are my servant, in effect, because he's, God is echoing there Isaiah 42.1. I am my servant whom I am well pleased, the first of the four servant songs in Isaiah. Jesus, God's son, is made in the form of a servant to live a life of perfect obedience to his father, following only his commands. Now, here in the desert, Satan comes along and picks up God's statement, you are my son. You're God's son, are you, says Satan. That's what your father said. Right, do this, do that by listening to me. But you see what he's doing? He's using Jesus' status as God's son for tempting him to deny his role as God's servant. Be a son, not a servant. Which means that the three temptations are basically one temptation. The temptation for Jesus to misuse his power as God's son, to disobey and deny his calling as God's servant. Jesus isn't necessarily wanting Jesus to give up on his messiahship, but just do it independently, in self-will, without waiting for the Father's direction and the Holy Spirit's guidance. Do it my way and Satan's way. Now, and this is the crucial thing, to deny or at least to disobey his calling as God's servant will spoil his relationship with his father. It'll fracture that oneness he has with the father and desire in all things does, uh, his desire in all things to please him. Jesus himself will later tell his disciples a bit about the harmony and the cooperation there is between himself and his father, that willing reliance. I tell you the truth, he says to, him, to, to the disciples in John 5, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. My judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. 
Now, don't suppose Satan minds which temptation Jesus gives into, providing he gives way and so spoils his harmonious relationship with his father. And I think that's Satan's aim for you, my Christian friend, Christian brother, Christian sister. Satan's real aim is to deceive you with his temptations to divert you, to knock you off track from following the Lord, to cloud your fellowship with your heavenly Father, to grieve his Holy Spirit. Yes, it's as simple and it's as shocking as that. And you know, I don't, I'm inclined to think, in one way, Satan doesn't mind what temptation you give way to. Whether it's something outrageous, like creating a public scandal as a fallen church leader, we've had plenty of those in recent years, or as an embezzler of church funds, or something less public, like blowing your cork at your spouse, or lying to your parents, or more respectable failure, like just getting so busy with the Lord's work you've got no time for the Lord, neglecting private prayer, you name it. Providing the devil achieves his aim, that is to spoil your relationship with the Lord. Obviously, if your sin causes the maximum misery to as many as possible, so much for the better, thinks the devil. Although actually, the less spectacular the sin, in some ways that can be more effective. Satan's strategy may be something like that because you may be not notice what's really happening to you. C.S. Lewis, in his Screwtape Letters, and experience in, in, in this Screwtape set letters, that a junior devil, a devil with L plates, is being instructed by a more experienced devil on learning the art of tempting. At one time, the experienced devil speaks of how important is their, are, are the strategy of small sins. Do you remember, he writes, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. That's God. It's the devil writing, remember. It doesn't matter how small the sins are, providing their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Now, if the devil's aim is to separate you from the Lord, he'll need to kid you that he can offer you something better than God can offer you to make following him seem more satisfying than following the Lord. Or to put it another way, that he can offer you something better than God can offer you. I can give you the kingdoms without waiting. Not your, you've got to, not, don't worry about all that business your father wants you to go through. That's the strategy he adopted in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And he succeeded and managed to ruin their fellowship with God and ruin the whole human race in the process. That's the strategy he adopted with the last Adam in the desert and failed. And that's the strategy he will adopt with you. The thing is, how far is he going to succeed? Whether it be with, a, for, with an appeal to appetite or with a shortcut to success or with a flight to fame or with something less spectacular and maybe being less spectacular, potentially the more likely to succeed. If his goal is to divert you from the Lord, the way to defeat him must somehow align your maintaining fellowship with the Lord, with fully trusting him, fully obeying him, indeed being fully satisfied with him. John Piper puts it so insightfully. The battle against temptation and sin is the battle to remain satisfied with God. Not to suppress our desires, but take some counsel from C.S. Lewis, as I conclude, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child. 
who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what it's meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So then, we've seen that like the Lord Jesus, we may face a variety of temptations. We've seen too that through the Lord Jesus, we may gain a victory over temptations, being empowered by the Holy Spirit and enlightened by God's word. And in the light of this, may we therefore be able to sing with an assurance that comes from not depending upon ourselves, but knowing we can depend upon the available, sufficient resources of our Saviour so that we can say, Oh, let me feel you near me. The world is ever near. I see the sights that dazzle, the tempting sounds I hear. My foes are ever with me, around me and within. But Jesus, draw still nearer and shield my soul from sin. It's number 901 in the book. Oh, Jesus, I have promised to serve you to the end.